Hello, I'm Trent, and this is the SB Podcast. Today we have Mike Rainbolt, who has uh, more than 40 years' experience in the completions world. So he's a bona fide completions expert. He's also a senior technical advisor with a company called Abra Controls, which is doing some pretty interesting data acquisition stuff and consulting in the shale patch and the unconventional sector. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we saw and uh, read about and learned about at the hydraulic fracturing technology conference that was held in the woodlands uh, at the end of January. Uh, so with that, we're going to get right into it. Thanks. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about uh, your experience, where you come from, and uh, you know, kind of what you're working on these days, and then we'll uh, get into the show. Yes, thanks. Thank you, Trent, for the invitation to speak here this morning. Um, as you said, I'm with Abra Controls. I'm a senior technical advisor. Uh, Abra does a lot of pressure monitoring and fracture-driven interference or interaction analysis. I've also spent, uh, since 1972, in the oil field as a roustabout, and then as an engineer, production engineer, drilling engineer, completion engineer, and uh, have some experience internationally in Argentina and Canada. But my passion is completions and fracture stimulation design and analysis. And uh, you know, you've written a few papers. So how many papers are you an author or co-author on on this topic? We'll, we'll put some of the links in uh, the show notes. Uh, currently, just in uh, concerning fracture-driven interactions, I'm, I'm a co-author in two papers and the lead author on a third paper. Okay, and uh, so uh, that's that's more than most people. And uh, you know, I think that we, uh, we we saw each other in a few of the same paper sessions, the technical sessions at uh, the hydraulic fracturing conference. And I wanted to get your take on a few things because I know that you were a co-author on one, uh, but there were some interesting themes uh, of the show. And so uh, one of them was some updates on companies that have been doing sort of what the, the techniques called preloading or, you know, uh, to, it has varying degrees. You can call it recharging, but essentially people are um, trying to uh, put water down in a, uh, a parent child well situation, putting the water down in the parents and sort of adding pressure to the reservoir again. Uh, to sort of restore some balance and protect those child wells. So you, you were an author on, on one of these update papers with Endeavor, right? And uh, which is a, a shale producer in uh, the Permian Basin. Yes, the uh, lead author was uh, Yvonne Schurz, and the paper number is 199686. And what we did uh, two years ago is we had a 22-well observation monitoring project, and we took those learnings and, and uh, used uh, that to plan for uh, fracture mitigation in in this new project and Endeavor was very successful doing that. As far as preloading, that is beginning to, to achieve some popularity. Of course, the concerns I'm hearing from operators is the expense of doing it and the, and the amount of, uh, you know, the success they're having in dampening or, or subduing FDIs. You can't stop them, but you can, you can uh, slow them down and reduce their overall impact. Right, and FDIs, we're talking about fracture-driven interactions. Uh, that's the, sort of the new technical term for what is colloquially known as frac hits, but, you know, some, you know, some people just call it fracture interference. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about just sort of the, you know, how you see 
how preloads work. Cause I, I sort of, I think we've all had to come up with like a mental image of, of how preloading works. But, um, early when pe when operators started coming out about it, they were saying that, you know, we were actually really unable to model some of this sometimes in, in commercial models because it is so unique. So what do you think, uh, wh why do you think preloading works? And is that even like the right term calling it preloading? Is that the one that's going to stick? Yes, uh, there's there's actually a couple of different ways you can you can preload, which means that you inject a certain amount of fluid into your well pre frack, and then there's the one that uh, a company called Abraxas is using, which is injection on demand, in which they do preloading, and then they have pumps rigged up to where they can uh, continue the injection when they see a pressure inflection occur in the offsetting well. The third type is continuous injection. And I actually have a client that, that did a side-by-side -side comparison of preloading versus continuous injection to see which technique was the most effective. And the goal of preloading and, uh, and continuous injection, really it's one, to protect the wellbore, the existing wellbore from sand influx or outright casing damage like you see in SP paper 191712. The other thing is they're trying to protect the existing assets, uh, reserves, and production rate. And number three, and this one is getting more and more popular, is using the, the preloading or the continuous injection to enhance the effectiveness of the stimulation in the new well. And I have seen cases where the new well is performing better by preloading than it did without it. In fact, 191712, that's, that was its main uh, point was they were using it to get uh, enhanced production from the new wells. Man, I have a lot of questions about preloading. And, and yes, I, I've seen actually with my own eyes, the active defense uh, or what you're calling uh, the on-demand preloading uh, from Abraxas. And it's, and it's just it's super, you know, it's actually super frustrating to be on the surface um, at a completion site when you're really uh, always thinking about what's happening down two miles below. But what so but let's open that up. I mean, why why is this working? Is it is it creating a pressure shield? Are we talking about stress changes, um, uh, port pressure changes? How how does the just putting water down really, really uh, uh, mitigate or uh, help keep fractures um, in the productive zone that operators are, are really targeting the target? This, this technique, uh, and I was in a course yesterday with Ali Donashi, and he's pointing out this: these preloads and injections really work with wells that have mostly liquid-rich reservoirs like oil and water with little, very little gas because liquids are less compressible, much less compressible than gas is. And what happens when you preload or inject is that you're actually, uh, at, Chevron actually calls it pushing back where you're, you have an incompressible fluid in there and you're putting enough resistance so that migrating fluids from the new well uh, run into resistance and cannot uh, overcome what you're, you're pu pumping into the, to the old well. And that's, that's the basis of the techniques. You're, you're, you're just basically fighting water with water, as the Abraxas article said, or you're making something that it's more difficult for the invading fluids to reach your old well or, or invade their fracture systems. Um, you know, I want to talk about the, the cost because, you know, this is sort of when, when you talk to new adopters, that's that's one of like the first things they say is is they talk about, you know, trying to like, well, OK, we're starting here, but we want to sort of bring things down. So what are the cost drivers? Uh, what are the things that the companies who have been doing this for one to two to three years? What have they learned on, on how to sort of scale this? Well, let's let's talk about the easy one first, and that's preventing sand influx into well into uh, wells. This is pretty popular in the uh, Bakken 
Reservoir and also uh, places like the Eagleford, where it's it's not uncommon to have to do a two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollar clean out after new well frac ops. And so I mean, if they you can get as high as half a million. You so. can, you can, and that's and that's with no wellbore damage, like stuck tubing or something else. So the 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 cost potential of not having to do a, a cost a cost clean out is well worth the preloading and preventing that. In fact, that's that's why Braxis is doing their injections is strictly to, to prevent uh, sand influx. Sometimes they see a little bump in production too, but the, uh, the 350000 to, as you said, $500,000 clean-out jobs are prohibitively expensive. Yeah, and, and so, so but, but what, is, what is the water total usage? Because, you know, one, one of the things that uh, made Braxis a little bit special in this regard was they had their own um, uh, produced water you know, system on, on that lease, and so they actually were able to control water costs very much. But what have you seen in terms of water usage um, and just in you know, even ballpark or, or general terms, are people starting high and then going down low uh, to reduce costs and see if they can still get the same sort of protection? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Here in SBE 191712, the, the, the technique was this. First order well, first order offset well received 20,000 barrel preload. The second order offset well received 10,000 barrel load. I'm working with operators right now that uh, typically 30 to 50,000 barrels per well. And in the case, in the one case of continuous injection that I know of, uh, we pumped 170,000 barrels of water into that from about three weeks prior to the beginning of frac ops until the end of frac, uh, frac ops. And we did that in accordance with the uh, Huntington Beach, California technique in which you pump it low and slow and every 10,000 barrels you shut down and measure ISIP. We saw a beautiful increase in ISIPs with time and uh, the, the technique was quite successful. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the Huntington Beach. That was a, a workshop. What was it now? Two years ago, uh, a, uh, a fracture-driven interaction mitigation workshop uh, over there in California. And and it, uh, I, you know, I wasn't there, but everybody that was always always brings it up. Uh, but I'll, I'll do the shameless plug. I mean, that's why uh, being in these rooms um, and and being a part of the SBE and, and a part of the discussion is so important for people. Um, if you're if you're engaged uh, anywhere in the world, whether it's China, Argentina, or the U.S. or Canada or Russia. Russia and, and hydraulic fracturing, uh, you know, being in, in you know uh, in these dialogue sessions is uh, is something that could actually shorten your your learning curve by years. You know, you know, maybe not ten years, but maybe two or three. Um, and so, so can you just comment on that? You know, uh, on how you've you know reflecting on what you saw at the conference um, the other week. You know, are people catching on to these things uh, pretty steadily and learning from each other? How is that knowledge transfer working? Uh, that uh, that's a that's a great comment. Uh, just briefly, at, at Huntington Beach, one of the things, two things that they stressed was that poor cement around your pipe can cause uh, can really reduce the number of clusters that you form uh, during your during during the stages. The other thing they mentioned was extreme limited entry perforating, and shortly after that, I noticed operators were sort of reluctant to uh, consider the limited entry perforating, but at the HTFC this time, I ran into a number of operators that they are that they are migrating towards the limited entry technique with ever shorter cluster spacing uh, to improve cluster efficiency, to improve uh, fluid distribution, and this tremendously helps 
uh, mitigate uh, fracture-driven interactions because you don't have one or two really long fractures that are, that are uh, as I say, leaving the reservation and going way under other wells that uh, have no benefit to either the old wells that they're in contacting or to the new well. Yeah, I've heard them called the runaways. The uh, runaways, yeah, that's but, correct. Uh, okay, well, we're going to pause it there. We're going to take a quick break uh, because I do want to talk about uh, limited entry and how it plays into one of the big papers that was uh, shared at the Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference. Um, and we'll be right back with Mike. SPE is proud to offer a mentoring program for both mentors and mentees. E-mentoring is a distance mentoring program that gives members a way to contribute to the ENP industry by sharing industry insights and practical career advice with young professionals, or by helping university students with academic and career direction. Young professionals also have the unique opportunity to serve as mentors to students. A six-month connection allows members and mentees to communicate electronically at their convenience. Learn more at spe.org slash e-mentoring. Hey, so Mike, we just got done sort of unpacking um, a, a lot of, uh, you know, perspective on on the preloading, but it, it sort of dovetails into another topic for me a little bit, because you mentioned uh, the continuous injection using over 100,000 barrels, and we've seen passive preloads use those kind of numbers too. Um, you know, Devin had a really good presentation about a year or so ago about how they were um, uh, looking at different sizes. But uh, I, you know, it, one, when you get to 100,000 is when you're, you're close to the order of the actual, or the original stimulation. Uh, but it's not quite a refract, but then you flip uh, the dial and you start pumping in that water at a higher rate and it is a refract. And we saw, we both saw a, a, a paper um, on refracturing and, uh, and one of the takeaways I had, and I put this on my social media feeds, was that it is, a, it is as more people delve into refracturing, they're learning it, it is more technically difficult than I think we first assumed a few years ago when refracturing caught a lot of buzz. And I, you know, I was part of that. I wrote about that too, because there was a lot of papers, a lot of potential, but now we're learning that, you know, it, as, as one person presenting on this from an operator, they said it's harder than the original completion job itself. So can you give me your perspectives on, on uh, how refracturing plays into things? Yes, the uh, paper that we both watched there at the HFTC, uh, they, they went through how they had technical challenges uh, installing the liner. Uh, they were running the liner, and then they were, uh, they, have, then they were cutting it off. That didn't work, so then they ran liners with liner hangers. But the, the, the good news is that even with, even with that, they were economically successful with their refracts. And these wells that, have, that originally had spacings of 100 or 200 feet between clusters, those are, those are really good candidates for uh, finding stranded reserves Robert Barra presented 195962 in, in Canada and showed how you can see these stranded reserves and get them through the refracturing process. The, uh, I, I think the refracturing is going to catch on because it, it, is, it is viable technique. Mechanically, we're going to have to come up with easier solutions to cut down on costs. But once you get your, your uh, new casing installed or your new liner, it pretty much goes like a, a regular frack. You perforate plug, perforate plug, frack, and uh, it's a normal operation. Well, let's spend, let's spend one minute dissecting, you know, what refracts are. You kind of laid out three different versions of the preload, and I'm sure there's a fourth or a fifth out there, you know, somewhere being tested. But, um, and if you, you know, throw in surfactants, I guess you call that the fourth version of that. But the uh, sticking just to, to refracts, uh, you know, there's bullheading, 
And then there's the mechanical uh, isolation, uh, AKA liner refracts. And so both of them seem to have different drivers, different outcomes, different reasons why you would want to do them. Can you talk to me about those? Yes. It, in some cases, it's not possible to run uh, new liners, or maybe it's just too expensive. So what operators are doing is they're just rigging up on the surface and uh, pumping fluid and sand down the down the casing without with maybe dropping uh, frac pods or doing some other diverter agents and working the fracks down hole. And from what I can tell, they're they're being successful. I know that about ten years ago, uh, with another operator I was working for, they tried to refrac bullheading, but all they were able to do is basically get the heel refract. We've made a lot of progress since then, and now we can now without isolation in some cases the wells will tolerate being bull bullhead fracked and uh we're having economic success doing that and i think there was even a paper talking about you know uh rate cycling to to optimize bullheads so so when we talk about bullheads you're literally just sending the water down the wellhead you're not trying to necessarily tell it which uh clusters to go into you might have perfed new clusters um, but it's just going to go into them, you know, uh, it's going to find the path of least resistance, essentially. And that's why you see that that bias on, on where the fluids actually go. But then people are talking about cycle the rates and you let this part take a little, then you, you, you start pumping up again. And then that the toe will take a little bit more. Um, so people are sort of trying to even fine tune something that's really a blunt uh, force tool uh, like like bullheading. But the, the the driver that was less mentioned at the show, but we know this, um, you know, just from past reporting and, and past events uh, is that, uh, you know, this is why refracts play into uh, 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 interference, fracture interference mitigation is because um, you are recharging the reservoir to the, you know, almost as much as you can. Um, you know, feasibly do. And so we're seeing, but then when you talk about the liner refracts, those are probably less driven by fracture interference mitigation. Would you, would you agree or? Yes. It, it, so there, there, we need to, we do need to mention that a fracture mitigation technique number four is refracturing. People are refracturing their well either shortly before the new well frac ops or maybe during the new well frac ops and this and that is also being successful but refracts as a standalone project where you're going after stranded reserves and trying to improve reserve recovery in an existing well that's also viable but the refracturing actually got started as i understand it by people trying to mitigate fracture interference events with refracturing. Yeah, we've, and we've heard that. It's a, a, a hard stat to pull, uh, to pin down uh, right there. But it, but it, it is, they're, they're two different beasts. And uh, so when we talk about refracture, refracturing going forward for, you know, everybody listening in the community, uh, it, it is helpful to keep in mind the driver because the, when I look at the liner refract, um, one of the comments in the paper that we're talking about, we'll, we'll post a link to it on, uh, on the show notes, but it was from Devin. It was an excellent, excellent thorough paper um, where you really got the, sort of do a day in the life of, of a refracturing team and go through the decision-making processes. And, you know, I worked a little bit uh, in the well intervention space when I came into the business. And I remember the one, when I asked the question, you know, what is well intervention? You know, one of the, one of the leads told me it's, it's, you know, imagine, you know, popping open the, the hood of a 57 Chevy with your eyes closed. You know, you're, you're, you, you don't know what's in that engine until you, till you go in and you, you feel it with your fingers 
And, uh, and so when you go into a lot of these wells, like you said, we're starting to know, uh, learn more about casing ovaling, perforation erosion from production. Um, may, you know, so there's all these issues that actually could cancel out um, <clears throat> a more expensive and more productive line or refrack. And so that's what, you know, I think a few years ago, people thought the pool of these things was, was massive. Um, and what we're learning is that it, it takes a dedicated, meticulous team with certain uh, skill sets that go uh, that add on to completions. You can't just be a good at completions. You have to be good at well intervention to do this. So, so going forward, it, while you you think it has like wide applicability, it, it still is a uh, um, a pretty tedious uh, but meaningful and yet you know expensive operation if you're going to do the liner version. Yeah, that's exactly right. And not only do you need uh, you know company personnel that are that are used to doing these, but also. Uh, you would want your workover services, like your workover rig and your uh, frac, frac company, to get them used to the, the, the refracturing nuances because there's going to be some reduced rate. There's going to be some property uh, prop, uh, design changes as you're pumping and that sort of thing. But as the, if they can get into the groove, I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for companies to make more money out of existing production. And it does seem like an area ripe for more technology innovation, even though, you know, you can do it with, with whatever's off the shelf today. Um, but just to make the life of a refract team easier, it does, you know, um, uh, this is without any sort of insider information. It just, you just look at this and you're like, there's got to be a few, you know, technology plays here. Uh, but, but we'll see how that scales. So, you know, we got you for a few more minutes and I wanted to, uh, uh, jump to, uh, another topic from HFTC. Um, and that was another Devon paper actually from, uh, uh, Kyle Hosveit, a engineer with, uh, with Devon. And he presented the cased wellbore, uh, monitoring, uh, method to, to the audience. So we're going to unpack that one in a second. Um, and, uh, we'll come right back. Are you looking for a group of like-minded individuals? SPE Technical Sections are communities of SPE members who come together to share ideas, promote competence, and develop projects related to their technical interest. They primarily meet virtually, but do hold face-to-face -face meetings at least once a year. To learn more, go to spe.org and search Technical Sections. All right, thanks, Mike. We're, we're, we're gonna talk now about sort of the last topic that we have you in here for today. Um, and it's, uh, it was, it's a, it was an interesting paper to see presented by Devin because they offered what it would amounted to a way to use a un uh, an unperfed wellbore that has not been hydraulically fractured yet and use it almost like a fiber optic proxy. Um, and so you can see what's happening in the subsurface by monitoring very small pressure changes and a virgin wellbore. Um, so can you, can you talk to me a little bit about how you saw this paper, maybe give us the 30,000 foot view of like its meaningfulness? Yes, uh, and uh, Kyle Hosfeit is a friend of mine and brilliant young, young man. The technique is actually right out of a Civil Engineering 101 book. You're looking at a deform deformation caused by an impact the squeezing action of a, of a fracture, and that deformation causes a small uh, pressure bump in the, in the uh, wellbore that you can detect at the surface. That's one of the appeals of this technique. You must have a sealed wellbore, and it must be completely full of water in order to see these. But when you detect them, what, the tech, what they're doing is they're monitoring the surface pressure with, with of course, high, high resolution gauges, 
and uh, Kyle is running DPDT, differential pressure, to look for a change in slope in that. And then when he sees it, then they do the second derivative, and you can see when the when the slope change ends, and that is that is uh, shows up very nicely as an impact of the casing. What that's telling you is you know when the fracturing from a, from the new well has reached the old well. Then you can make the decision of what do you need to do to the frac design on the next stage to uh, increase your volume of first response. You want that delayed as much as possible because if you have an earlier fracture uh, volume of first response, that means you're communicating with the wells very, very fast and you're, and you're not you know, effectively stimulating the, the new well. You, you want to delay the, what we could just call it VOFR. And, uh, and what they do is they make a change to the perforating scheme Maybe slow the rate down, and then they then they re, then they then they're watching, and they already know what to expect. Uh, a offer would have been had they not changed anything, and then they can judge whether or not they've succeeded in in uh, making their fracturing design more efficient. But the technique is viable; it does work. And uh, I was going to ask George King, George, if you're listening. What does that, if we can see that inflection on surface, can you convert that to a frac to a casing load? Because George is a specialist in casing failures and stuff now. And that, that was, I was going to ask that question, but there was just too many people there at the panel. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're referencing the casing deformation panel, which uh, we had uh, George come in a uh, uh, few months ago, actually, to help preview and tease out. Uh, but no, that's an interesting another application. But d there, there's actually so many things that it looks like you can potentially do uh, with this, uh, the sealed wellboard monitoring technique. But you mentioned volume to first response. I mean, that in itself is sort of a new concept. Am I right on that? Yes, this is this is again is, is and let me give full credit to Devin. This is something that they identified. It's all related to timing. And I, what I can tell you is from doing numerous case studies, Sometimes you see the volume of first response at 2,000 barrels pumped. If you assume that half of that went in both directions, then that means before you've even finished pad, you're communicating with the old well. And, if, and, and in that case, then you know that you're, you're uh, probably wasting some frac fluid and, and propant because of the early communication problems. And that's, that's a great way to look at it. So we talked about preloading, trying to prevent... Uh, um, ending up with sand in a parent well bore, but if you if you have uh, uh, earlier than expected communication with an offset parent well, then what you need to realize is you're sending capital over there to a depleted zone, and uh, and that's where decision making starts to need to happen on that stage or the next stage. So this is where we start to uh, you know roll out the idea of of real time frac, which which Devin says this method enables. Um, and, and the volume, the first response, if I could just characterize, I guess the end goal here, the, the worst goal would be to get the, you, you start pumping, like you said, on the pad um, uh, stage, and then you get early communication in minutes. Um, the best scenario is that you're 600 feet away from your parent and that you pump 100% of your sand and water without seeing a response. Uh, the realistic scenario maybe is that you see, uh, you, you pump 75% of your slurry mix and then see a response and you keep pumping a little bit more and, and, and like you're trying to toggle that and slow it down. So can I take that 75%, make it 80, make it 85? Is that, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? That's correct. That one of my diagnostic plots that I do is uh, a percent of stage load versus, uh, you know, time and, and, and with the FDI plotted on there and what you can see, what, what happens is, 
uh, for plug and perf is as soon as the ball lands, then you start looking for any sort of pressure changes in the offsetting well. And these pressure changes can start at say 10% or 20% of the, of the, of the load that you intend to pump, or it could be delayed to over 50%. More times than not, I'm seeing that before you finish pad, you've got a fracture driven interaction in progress. And then you look at the slope, the, what we call in 179, 173, the slope intensity, and you try to model forward and see what the possible magnitude, total growth magnitude is on that FDI. Say if it's going to be 300 PSI total by the time you're done pumping, or maybe over 2,000. And then you can decide, do I need to change something or just go to flush? Yeah, th- this is amazing stuff because I think it's easy to take for granted what we're talking about here, you know, and w- w- watching this, this evolution, um, you know, this wasn't something that people were talking about five years ago at all. And, and, uh, and to, it, it definitely leads to fracture, uh, propagation control. In other words, um, you know, instead of just sticking to the, the design that was based on, you know, your stats and your models, you're, you're going to listen to the rock this time. And you're, you're going to change, you know, just by virtue of, of seeing these signals. Um, this is what actually something like this, um, is actually what's more likely than anything I've ever seen to move uh, operators away from geometric completion designs. Uh, because when you look at that data, it's just so hard not to want to make a change, um, uh, you know, knowing what you, um, what you can gain by, by toggling, toggling the dials here. But let me, th- on a related topic, um, is the issue that very passionate for you to talk about is, is time. And so when we see these uh, slopes at uh, present in, in presentations and papers, one thing we need to understand is that this, this is an, this is based on an array of sensors, whether they're on the same pad um, or different pads, but usually we're talking about the same pad and, and multiple wellheads. If these things are not time synced, if, uh, if the sensors are not time synced, then you have a lot of trouble in the analysis. You know, real time might be out the window if pressure sensors are off in either direction by five minutes. Um, so can you just elaborate on, on what the industry is learning? Because we're starting to hear more operators, you know, put a bullet point in their presentations on this. Make sure that, you know, you know what time sync means and make sure you have it on these sensors. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. Uh, when I wrote SPE paper 189-853, the ESP pump and the service company clocks were different. I mean, they were really different, and it was a struggle to try to to try to get those two uh, data sets to line up. What happens? What we do is all of our clocks in our sensors are timed to the internet and corrected continuously through network time protocols to internet time. So, for instance, in one nine four three four nine with EE with uh, Endeavor, we had twenty two sensors out, and we even put sensors on the treatment wells. Now, when I go to do my analysis looking for FDIs, everything is lined up. I have, I have 22 different uh, data channels, and I've got one time axis. If you don't know what time re- your reference time is in the other clocks, and you say, oh, my VOFR was 2,000 barrels in this well, or it was 6,000 barrels in the next stage, you really don't know because you don't know if you're uh, running from the CSV files of the service company. Now, there's what we can do, too, is we can 
asked our service providers to check their computer against our cell phone and verify that they are reasonably close to internet time. That way, when you go, when the engineer goes to do the analysis, it makes his, his or her life much easier. But since all of our sensors are on internet time, I can literally have plots drawn in just a few minutes because I don't have to worry about synchronization. And we call it atomic reference time, which internet time is eventually tied to the cesium fountain clocks in Boulder, Colorado, and around the world. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that one. So <laughs> we have, uh, but th that's just having having a certain reference time is uh, makes analysis so much easier well, and eliminates a lot of uncertainty. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, so you, you've had to deal with these struggles, struggles before you were with Abra. You know, you, you, as an operator, you were trying to reconcile some of these data sets. And so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, you know, if you can comment on, it, you know, I, I, if we're telling people um, that, you know, here's some of the things you need to know about quality, uh, data quality and, and, and quality control here is, uh, is don't try to manipulate these things manually. Uh, there's something called peak to peak um, that you guys have talked about a little bit where uh, people are trying to line up the interactions, the fracture interactions, and you and your brain might actually want them to be overlaying, but you're missing the fact that you're that these signals are delayed from well to well. So th these are th when these fractures move, they maybe are moving at 40 feet a minute, not light speed. And and so when you see some when you see some charts, um, you, you always have to think about where, where uh, slopes, um, the, the peaks of the slopes matched to, together. And is that, is that a major pitfall? Yes, it is. If you're, if you're using peak to peak, what that tells me is that you have no idea what your reference time is. The only thing you can do is, is uh, line them up on possibly common events. Uh, at, at the end of the day, you, you, all you really have is a yes or no answer. So what, what I would encourage all the listeners here is, However you're collecting data, verify your time reference for each clock. Otherwise, you really don't know what, with, it, with certainty what's going on. Yeah, if, if you take Mike's advice, you could be like sort of the data hero in your, in your department uh, for, for figuring this out, well, out because it's- Well, here, here's, here's the worst part. And you mentioned a little bit what, you can, what some analysts will do, and it's really tempting, is they'll make the data look like they think it should look like. And that's not valid engineering, right? And it, but it's so tempting to say, "Well, I'll just, I'll just shift it over here. That looks good." No, no. If you can't, if you, if you can't line it up, just admit you can't line it up. You've got an FDI, but that's about all you can t say about it. Yeah, it's sort of like, uh, it, it, it's like recording. Uh, uh, a live concert versus being in the studio and doing sound mixing. Uh, you know, so don't do sound mixing when you're trying to look at, uh, you know, subsurface pressure data, uh, especially in the unconventional setting where minutes really matter because of the pump rates and, and where these fractures are going. So I, I think this is a big learning lesson for a lot of companies as they go through this journey, but I definitely feel like it's, 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 you know, the word is getting out there on that. Uh, Trent, uh, I, I would want to mention that one of the other things too is our goal is to make this data available in real time, which we already do, but we are trialing getting the data from, from the data van on our data set too so that the operator can literally click onto our link and see the entire job, rates, pressures, and offsetting wells at the same time. Here's the thing. If you don't have that kind of data system and you're trying to make a million-dollar decision on whether to continue a stage or not, 
you may make a wrong decision if you don't have uh, if you don't have accurate time. So again, encouraging all the operators out there uh, try to collect your data in real time and make sure your reference time is good. Because if you if you plan to make a decision, and I'm seeing that more and more operators are are starting to actually entertain the idea of making changes on the fly, then you need to make sure that you've got the best data you can get to make those decisions with. Yeah, well, I think you summed it up well, Mike. And, uh, you know, I think for everybody listening, what you're hearing is is a really candid take on the actual state of the evolution of this. So real-time fracturing um, is a big, big buzzy topic right now, but it's not a light switch. It's an evolutionary process. Uh, it seems like we're sort of in this, the, the middle innings of, of getting there, actually, whereas a few years ago, I, it was it was a lot further away. But, but People like you, um, conferences like the Hydraulic Fracturing Conference, um, are really helping to paint uh, uh, the, the picture of where people are, uh, where they may be going. Uh, but with that, we're out of time. Uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing your mind with us, Mike. Uh, I'd love to see you back. But you know, we're going to put uh, some links to your papers on the, uh, the show notes. And I uh, really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Okay, well, we'll see everybody next time. Thank you. This PE podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible, and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.